0: In reading through the, uh, the whole of the Bible from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, one of the unique aspects or, or distinctive uh, features that surfaces is the role that food plays. Uh, you, you can ask my kids uh, or my wife, I've had this idea for some time, that someone uh, should come up with a cookbook and name the dishes after Reformed doctrines. So you could have, for example, uh, Calvin's predestination pie. So you'd have the recipe, brief explanation of the doctrine. What about total depravity? Maybe a double, triple cheeseburger, in the middle of which is a s'more. And then that's all just doused with some kind of cheese sauce. The recipes might need some work. Well, beginning in Genesis, the opening scene, one of the opening scenes is with man and woman in the garden. And the Lord says to them, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, you shall not eat. We think of the Passover lamb in Exodus, a picture of God's saving grace, the manna in the desert, God's provision, his sustenance for his people. Jesus turning water into wine, a picture of celebration and of the coming of the kingdom of the Messiah and His arrival. The feeding of the thousands on different accounts, different occasions in the Gospels. The miraculous hand of the Lord. We could go on, but as we turn to Daniel and we continue in this book, food takes center stage in the text to communicate a very important message And that is the believer's call to have an uncompromising faith. So as you turn to Daniel, we're continuing in chapter 1. Daniel and his companions, we have already seen, have been exiled by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. This is an act of judgment by the Lord for the sin of His people. So God is behind what is taking place. But Nebuchadnezzar's strategy is to entice Daniel. And his friends lavish upon them luxuries and education, the king's own food, the king's own wine. Why? To conform, to assimilate and conform them to the Babylonian culture. And so we pick up from there at verse 9 of chapter 1 of Daniel. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Verse 8. than the youths who are of your own age. So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he said to the steward, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of The youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he, the steward, listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. In the first chapter here of, of Daniel, Daniel gives us a snapshot of the larger context. In the first verse and the last verse of this chapter, we're not only given the context that this is the Babylonian exile, but for how long. Back in verse 1, we're told it was in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, that Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged Jerusalem. That was likely the first deportation in 605 B.C., Then you have the last verse. Daniel was in exile until the first year of King Cyrus. That is the later Persian king who would issue that decree permitting the people of God to return to their homeland in 538-539 B.C., a nearly 70-year period of time that Daniel and his friends will be in exile. And this is in part, it seems, to communicate to us that amidst exile, Even amidst this bleak, dark time, God is going to have a people. He's going to preserve a people for Himself. He will be faithful. He will grant to them favor. He will sustain them. He will fulfill His promises. But it's not going to come apart from God's work in and through the sincere faith and courage of His saints. And that's the first thing to see here in this text. It is the uncompromising faith of Daniel and his friends. We're told in verses 8 to 10 of the text that Daniel and friends would not defile themselves of the king's food or the wine he drank. Again, recall Nebuchadnezzar's aim and strategy. One, enticement. He's lavishing upon them luxury. We see that in the early verses. Two, assimilation, welcome and engraft them in. And then three, conformity, make them one of their own. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar not only assigned for them an education, a daily portion of his food and wine, but he had given to them new names back in verses 6 to 8. That while the original meaning of of their names, uh, their original names, reflected something of Yahweh, The one true God, the God they worship, Hananiah, meaning Yahweh is gracious, Azariah, Yahweh is helper. He gives them new names which reflect something different, reflecting something of the gods of the Chaldeans, of the Babylonians. So he is conforming them, assimilating them. But notice, Daniel, who authored the book, maintains their original names, as as you heard, through this first chapter. But not only that, they resolve not to partake of the king's food or wine. Why is that? That's clearly central to what's going on here. Why do they do this? It may not be what one would think at first glance. First of all, what would you do? What would you do? The king has given you special attention. You essentially have a seat at the king's table. It's probably like a president or prime minister today. You're probably eating pretty well, like anything you want. Wouldn't we naturally assimilate to that? Well, we might think Daniel and his friend's motivation was to avoid something or anything ceremonially unclean according to God's law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But that's likely not the full explanation. Certainly, while some foods among the Babylonians would have been forbidden for the Jews, wine certainly was not. But Daniel's refusing this. Or maybe we think out of concern that the food, the wine, had been offered to false gods and idols that they're seeking to refrain. That, too, seems to fall short as explanation. The vegetables could have just as easily been offered to idols as much as meat. What is Daniel thinking? I think what Daniel's thought is, which is so essential for godly living, seems to be the pursuit of holiness, devotion to the Lord, by avoiding the potential snares all around, luxury, The snares of luxury, the the snares of affluence, the snares of comfortability. Here's how John Calvin put it, commenting on these verses. He says, we know how far enticements prevail to deceive us, especially when we are treated daintily with special care. And experience shows us how difficult it is to be moderate when all is affluence around us, for luxury follows immediately on plenty He says, Daniel desired to refrain from too great an abundance and delicacy of diet simply to escape those snares of Satan by which he saw himself surrounded. Think about the beginning or preparation period for Jesus' ministry there in Matthew 4 when he was tempted by the evil one. He goes into fasting for 40 days. He's demonstrating his dependence upon the Lord, certainly also hearkening back to the 40 year Wilderness wandering, by which Israel fell short again and again. And now you have the true Israel, Jesus Christ, who will be pure and holy and depend upon the Lord. But he is demonstrating a dependence and devotion to God. Food, comfort, luxury, education, money, affluence, can be wonderful things, gifts from God. But Daniel knows the nature Of man in his own heart and the power of enticements. We can begin to depend upon and love the things in God's world, his creation, more than depending upon and loving God himself. That's what distinguishes us as the Church of Christ, as Christians. All that we enjoy, we first express thanks to God for it. There is that vertical influence and orientation. But our first passion and love is to be God Himself, the Creator and Redeemer. So Daniel would not have it. His effort was to demonstrate an uncompromising devotion and dependence upon the Lord. When we think about uncompromising faith, we might think of a figure like Martin Luther. Certainly appropriate since it's Reformation Sunday. There Luther 1521 had already nailed the 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg years prior had published pamphlets and other works calling out the abuses of the Roman church convinced of the doctrine of justification and now he's charged with heresy and he's called to that assembly in Worms Germany he stands before the authorities and he's called to recant of his position and his writings And eventually, tradition has it, he issued those words with with trembling, with fear, knowing his life was on the line. Here I stand, he said. Here I stand, I can do no other. The Protestant tradition, the Reformed tradition, stands on the shoulders of people who have demonstrated an uncompromising faith. That we can know and cherish the doctrine that salvation is in the Scriptures alone. We stand in the grace of God alone through faith, in Christ, to the glory of God. And yet, while we cherish these truths and and the courageous faith of Luther, we're we're not standing in his shoes. We're not standing in Daniel's shoes. We're standing in our own. Often, demonstrating an uncompromising faith comes in subtle ways for you and I. Oftentimes. Oftentimes. Are we demonstrating that kind of uncompromising faith? Is that our desire? What does an uncompromising faith look like in your life in regards to your commitment to the Word of God? We live in an information age. We have the 24-hour news cycle. Sometimes we can give a greater attention to the news that's taking place, as important as it is, than to this news, than to this news. What does an uncompromising faith look like in demonstrating charity, love, and sacrifice for the bride of Christ, for the church of Christ? What does an uncompromising faith look like in devotion to one's husband, wife, children, parents? Notice how Daniel demonstrates his devotion and how he seeks to avoid conformity. He's not rash. He's shrewd. He's very wise. We're told in verse 8 that he asked. He asked the chief official to allow him not to partake. And what's the official's response? Essentially, no way. If you don't get sufficient sustenance and food, it's going to show, and there's going to be a consequence for me from the king. But Daniel persists. When the steward comes, who is assigned to Daniel, we're told, representing the chief official, representing the king, Daniel says to him, test us. See, Daniel walking that line. He's seeking to be pure and clear, single-minded in his devotion. Just test us then for 10 days. We'll eat vegetables and drink water. In other words, that we may not defile ourselves and you may may remain in good stead with the king. Just test us. See, Daniel is walking with wisdom, first seeking a life of devotion to God, but he's doing so in a world that requires shrewdness and wisdom and respect. Related are Paul's words to Timothy. Pray for all peoples, kings, rulers, those in high uh, position that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Behind Daniel's devotion to the Lord is a God who is at work. That comes through the whole of the book. This God is revealing to Daniel, granting favor to Daniel. Verse 9 tells us God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief official. That's the work of God. So, Daniel's not alone here in his devotion. Throughout the book, we'll see this God bends the will of people. He raises and deposes kings and kingdoms. He causes his people to be favored. So, as Daniel enters this 10-day test, he's doing so not blindly or without assurance. He's doing so confident that as he is seeking to honor his God, God's going to be his sustenance. Verse 14, so he, the steward, listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And here's the question, or perhaps application for us, at least one, is, is the provision, is the diet, if you will, is, is the diet of God, the provision of God sufficient, effective for us in this world? I think those 10 days could be taken as a kind of metaphor for our faith journey. Is God's word, is God's prescription, is God's presence enough? This 10-day test brings us back to the the Exodus, the wilderness wandering, God's provision of manna for the people. It, It points us forward to Christ and His words in John 6. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died, but I'm the living bread that if anyone eats of it, he will live forever. Throughout our faith journey, daily we have the diet of the world, the the food for life that the world is offering. It's driven by hunger for power, the passion to fulfill selfish ambitions, a pride in the achievement of man, the love of money, And then you have the diet, the food that God has provided in Christ. This is a way of lowliness and humility. The passion for His Word, an expression of dependence upon the Lord, evidenced in a life of prayer. The longing for that better country so that we're living this life somewhat with a loose grip, knowing there's a better country to come. Recall what the author of Hebrews said about Moses in that great chapter on faith, Hebrews 11, 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the rejection, the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. There, Moses had much pleasure to be had in Egypt, even to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Many privileges. Instead, he chose, it says, he chose to leave that country to associate with the people of God, to bear rejection like that of Christ. Yet it's that lowly path which contains the food that gives true life, everlasting life, fullness of life. We must ask, how is it, as verse 15 says, that Daniel and his friends were fatter in appearance by only eating vegetables and drinking water. And please, don't think, well, they just ate a whole lot of carrots. Again, I love what Calvin says. Uh, He says, "...just as Moses said, man does not live by bread alone, implying that the bread itself does not impart strength to men, for it has no virtue in itself. Men are nourished by the secret blessing and word of God." Yet, because God has determined that our life shall be sustained by nourishment, He has breathed its virtue into the bread. Meanwhile, we ought to consider our life neither sustained by bread nor any other food, but by the secret blessing of God. You see what He's saying? It's not by bread or any other food that gives and sustains life, but the God who provides and makes that bread nourish the body. If God wants to fatten, Daniel and his friends through water and vegetables, that's his prerogative to do so. Is the diet, is the food that God provides us sufficient? Is it enough? His word that guides us, his spirit that strengthens us, his throne room of grace to which we have access to pray the cross, is what Jesus has done on the cross enough for us? However deep our sin, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, I come to thee for dress. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Is His food, is His provision enough? As one steps back and considers the the closing verses of this chapter, which says, God gave them learning and skill, understanding in all visions and dreams. They were brought before the king in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired. He found them ten times better than all the magicians in all his kingdom." There's a larger point. Even in times that appear very bleak, dire, they have been exiled. They are in foreign territory. The temple is destroyed. Yet God is going to have a people for himself. God will cause that people to prosper in his way and in his will. God will use those people for his kingdom purposes in this world. In the end, we're reminded our life and faith should not be defined by what we do not have or by what we've lost, but by what we do have, by what we do have. May we hunger for Him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness they shall be filled. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we thank you for the diet, the prescription that you afford, that you provide, that you appoint for us. We thank you for the bread of life that gives us true, deep, everlasting life. We thank you, Lord, for your grace that fuels and motivates our our hearts to live depending upon You, looking to You in devotion. Would You you grow us, Lord, grow our hearts, desire to pursue You, to recognize the, the potential snares of the evil one, seeking to assimilate, conform us to the pattern of this world. Renew our minds, Lord, to have the mind of Christ to be able to enjoy this, your creation, but to have you as the central object of our praise and worship. Give us that heart, O Lord, we pray. We ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.